Last week we talked about uh, a pointless faith. I hope you've taken your Bible already and found uh, your place in James chapter 1. It's part of this series, Faith, Just Live It. And uh, this is the second part of this particular message. We talked, as I just said, about the pointless kind of faith that is often characterized by a person who confesses to be a follower of Christ, but they live in a manner that undermines their confession. In other words, they're a person that is a hearer but not a doer. They are a person that confesses something that they do not possess. It is a characteristic of a person who has a religious talk without a spiritual walk. And James calls this a a kind of false faith, a worthless kind of faith, a pointless kind of faith. My wife asked me yesterday, she said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And, uh, and I told her, I said, well, I'm going to do the second part of what we talked about last week, a pointless faith or a powerful faith. And uh, she said, oh, I've got a good quote from Vance Habner. She said, you'll like this. And she passed this on to me. Listen to what Vance Habner said. He said, the devil is not fighting religion. He's too smart for that. He's producing a counterfeit Christianity. So much like the real one that good Christians are afraid to speak out against it. Wow. Now, he died in 1986. Can you imagine what he would think today if he saw what was going on in the church in America today? So uh, the, the enemy, I fully believe, has indeed produced a kind of a counterfeit Christianity. One, and we're constantly being told now you can't question anything, especially if it's under the guise of religion or spirituality. Well, James does. He calls into question those who had a worthless kind of faith versus the kind of powerful faith that you and I uh, can have. I noticed back here these, uh, whoop, these stools. <laughs> got you, didn't I? It almost got me. I noticed these, this, these stools back here, and I got to thinking as I was sitting down there, um, you know, when you look at that, whoever constructed this had to be a stoolologist, I assume, is what it is, or had a degree in stoology, and um, at least, or an engineer, or something of that sort, don't you think? And they, I mean, there are people smarter than me that have studied the design of stools and chairs and those sorts of things, and you know, you can see they figured out how, whether it's a chair or a stool like this, how how to disperse weight, right, so that you can sit on it and balance it and balance and all of that. It will just kind of work. And, uh, and so it's the same for the chairs you're sitting in. We, we had a company that is a pro in chairs and seats and auditorium seats. They designed these in here, and I, I, didn't, I don't think I saw anybody come in this morning and stare at the seat and try to decide whether or not they were going to sit in it. Um, now, you may have asked somebody to get out of your seat, but I hope not. I hope you didn't do that. But when you look at that, I, I, I mean, uh, I, uh, I think that stool will hold me, or you. I, I think it will, will hold me. That's head knowledge, isn't it? I, I, I look at it, and I, I think it will hold me. I, when I look at it and figure out that, you know, it's held other people up here, and I, I think it would hold me. Um, but, but do you believe it will hold me? In fact, if you believe this will hold me, say, I believe. I believe. Man, you are people of faith, aren't you? 
So I, I think it will hold me. We believe it will hold me. Believe is what you just said it. That was your confession, right? But that's not enough. It's not enough to think. That's head knowledge. It's not enough to confess it. What has to happen, class? Robert, you come try it first, okay? <laughs> so what you have to do is you have to sit on it, right? I wondered, you know, and you thought maybe it was a prop that was going to collapse on purpose, right? But you, you get it, don't you? You get, you get the point that you can, you can think that because people have designed it, it, it should do the job. You can confess that you believe it will do the job, but the rubber meets the road when you sit down on it. When you sit down on it and you prove that you have faith, Everything before that is just talk. Everything before that is just thinking. But it is the action that makes the difference. And James contrasts here in these two verses that we'll read, he contrasts this whole idea of those who have, they, they think right, they confess the right thing, but he says, but you're not, you're not acting on what you're confessing. And because of that, he said, you have a worthless faith. Now, I believe there are many today, even in the churches today, who have a worthless faith because they think right, they confess right, but there's no evidence that they are acting on what they confess. And today, I want to look at this second expression that, about faith that James gives us and that is demonstrated in more than just our thoughts, more than just what we say. It is manifested in our actions. James teaches us that this kind of faith is a powerful faith. Would you stand with me in honor of God's Word if you're physically able to do so? As we read these two verses again, chapter 1 of James, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious, do you notice he used the word thinks? If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father, uh, remind us of what James is speaking to us about, that faith without action is worthless, but faith that does is powerful. Father, would you take all the study that I put in? Will you take my thoughts? Will you take my words? Will you use them? I give it all to you. I give myself to you. And Father, I pray that now you will make our hearts soft, the kind of soil that will receive the seed of the Word of God. And will you then take it and transform us, cause us to be indeed what we've already looked at, doers of the Word and not hearers only, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, because of the rebuke that James makes in these verses, along with a similar rebuke he makes in chapter 2, verses 14 and following, probably a more, a more detailed passage about faith and action, faith and works, because of this kind of rebuke, James is suggesting that most likely the people he had addressed this to 
were living in a way that gave no evidence whatsoever that they were saved. And so he has an agenda when he writes. This whole book is kind of a practical Christian agenda, isn't it? And he has this agenda. There's this intentional purpose for which he writes, and particularly what we're looking at today. What he wants to do is he wants to shake them, and I guess you could say by extension, and shake us from some kind of spiritual lethargy that can set up a a spiritual kind of naivete that can capture us. And, And it had evidently caused them to be characterized by a lazy kind of faith at best and a faith that worse was useless, pointless. It was simply something that they talked about but the actions were inept and insincere. Let me give you a quick overview from last week. You you can see it there on the outline. I filled in the blanks for you. We talked about a a pointless faith last week, verse 26, and then the characteristics of a pointless faith. What did we say they were? A pointless faith has a false perception of itself. It, it assumes that everything is okay spiritually. That's the false perception. It just makes this assumption, and they were making that assumption because they, they thought right and they had the right confession that it must be uh, that their faith was uh, vital and Uh, And so they assumed that everything was okay spiritually. Secondly, we said that pointless faith has a false power. That is, it depends on uh, the flesh to control the flesh. The illustration he uses is that a person can't bridle their tongue, meaning they have no power over their tongue. They have no control. And James talks about that, and we'll talk about that in future messages as we work through this book. But uh, a pointless faith has a false kind of power. It is dependent on itself. It's relying on on, uh, its own flesh to control its flesh. And then third, we said it has a false product. What do we mean by that? We mean simply this, it produced nothing of lasting spiritual value. There was no product, there was no real fruit of the Spirit from it. So James is writing with a bit of a rebuke to them And if that's who and where you find yourself, it is a rebuke to us as well. But then he moves to verse 27, and in verse 27, he gives a glimpse of faith that is real, a a faith that is valuable, how it displays itself. And in that, he speaks of the second point that I want you to get, a powerful faith. And note the statement in verse 27 in which he says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. That's how he characterized this powerful kind of faith. Many of you have been to our peanut festival. It won't be long and it'll be back. And uh, uh, I remember some years ago when our daughter was still in high school and we went and and she she wanted to ride this big old wheel that slid up. You know what I'm talking about? It goes round and and round and tries to make you lose your corn dog, you know. (laughs) Uh, that kind of thing. Well, not really. It's, it's not real, real bad. But, uh, but, you know, it takes a long time to ride one of those things. What is that called, class? You know, it's called a, 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 a Ferris wheel. Um, and um, I, thank you. I thought it was a hamster wheel. But um, a, a Ferris wheel. And, you know, you get in those seats and you move up a little bit and they have to load the whole thing and you go around a time or two and, and then they have to start unloading it. So it can be a long, slow ride. And and uh, so at any rate, we, we rode the, the Ferris wheel. But do you know where the Ferris wheel came from? It was invented in 1893 by a man named George Ferris. 
And um, he was the inventor. And when he finished it, he invited the local newspaper reporter to accompany him and his wife on the very first ride of the Ferris wheel. Now, I can understand that he didn't have a lot of volunteers and that this was a new thing. And, right? I mean, you, I don't think I wouldn't have. I had enough trouble volunteering to go up with my daughter. And so he invites this reporter right along with my wife and I on the very first the very first ride on this, this well. And it just so happened on that day there were high winds going on. And so they get on the Ferris wheel and surprisingly it began its rotation, but despite the wind, it stayed just as solid as it could be. It was not affected by the wind at all. They rode a few loops and then they finally, uh, Ferris called to the operator down below and said, okay, now bring us down and, and that sort of stuff. We're going to get off. They they, they stopped uh, the Ferris wheel, he, he, the reporter and Ferris and his wife got off of the uh, Ferris wheel, and, um, and I couldn't help but think, in braving that first rotation, what an act of faith, right? I mean, it was more than uh, just seeing that and saying, oh, that's good, yeah, that's a neat thing, that'll be a lot of fun. They, somebody had to test it, right? And it was in the action that they displayed kind of a, a, a faith, you might say, in braving the wind and braving that the, a, a ride that had never been uh, ridden, they showed that they did more than just think it could work and more than just believing that it worked, they put their faith in it. And really, you might say, um, they put their faith in Mr. Ferris, didn't they? I mean, Mr. Ferris began with scientific knowledge, and that's how he constructed his machine, and he used that knowledge to believe that it would work and that it would be safe, and then the reporter, looking at it, believed the machine would work based on what the creator, Mr. Ferris, had said, this will work. But it was only after the ride could all three of them step off and say, that we'd experience the power of the Ferris wheel. Their faith in the creator of the Ferris wheel led to action with the creator, who, by the way, listen, just as a side note, the creator went on the ride with them. Let me, do you, you get it? Jesus never puts you in a faith walk and says you're on your own. He says, I'm with you. Three men were in a fire and the the king looked in and said, it looks like four men in there. That's because there were four men in there. And the fourth one had the appearance of the Son of God. You see, there's a difference between pointless faith and powerful faith. Powerful faith trusts the Creator. Pointless faith trusts in self. Powerful faith acts on the word of the Creator. This will work. you got to trust me. But pointless faith only talks about action. Powerful faith joins with the Creator in His work. Pointless faith, listen, don't miss this, wants the Creator to join me in my work. You see the difference? And to help us understand this real and powerful kind of faith, James characterizes it in three ways. Let me show them to you this morning. First of all, it is a majestically concerned faith. 
You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look, look again at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled. Here's the operative statement. Before God. Powerful faith is concerned about what God, it is concerned about what the majesty thinks over what everybody else thinks. And James says that real, pure, undefiled faith is a faith that is focused first on God. It, it is vertically focused, and it recognizes God as the Father. You know, in our modern world, it's not unusual to hear people express the idea that God is the Father of everyone. Have you ever heard that? God is the Father of everyone. Did you know that's just not true? Now, God is the creator of everyone and of all things. But contrary to popular opinion, God's not the father of everyone. And we hear people today talk about the universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood of all mankind. But there is nothing in the Bible that teaches the universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood of mankind. So what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that God is the creator of all things and all humanity, but he is only the father of those who have been born again. God is only the father of those who have been saved. He's only the father of those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal savior. How do we know that? Well, listen to what the Scripture says in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a part of the universal brotherhood of mankind. That's not what it says. He gave the right to them to become, listen, children of God. Did you know that those who are not saved though, do have a father? They do have a father. I'm talking about a, a spiritual father. We're talking about spiritual things here. So only those who have been born again have God as their father. Are you all with me? <clears throat> but those who don't know, those who are lost, those who have never been saved, they have a father too. The Bible tells us that. And their father is, do you know who it is? It is the devil. Listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were phony religious actors. And Jesus said in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You see, we all do have a father. It's either God the Father or a spiritual father called Satan. And did you notice that you do his desires, you follow his way? Did you get that? Jesus identified their father as the devil. Now let me tell you something about real powerful faith. It is, it is vertically focused. It is majestically concerned. It's pure and undefiled because its eyes are vertically fixed on God and not uh, horizontally fixed on the world. What does God think? It's pure and undefiled because it reflects a saving relationship with God. It reflects a born-again experience. Hey, can I ask you, have you ever been born again? I didn't just ask you, have you been religiously affiliated? Have you ever been born again? I like what uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers said some years ago. He said, if you haven't been born again, the day will come when you wished you'd never been born at all. 
So a powerful faith is majestically concerned. It it says, what does God think? I I, want to be pure and undefiled before God. But then second, a powerful faith is ministry-centered. Do you notice what he says there? As he goes on in verse 27, he says, this is what it is to visit orphans and widows and their afflictions. Now, James makes this statement to illustrate ministry that emerges from real faith. This doesn't mean that these things, ministering to orphans and to widows, these things alone define real powerful faith. He's not saying that. He's not saying these two things, you get these, you got real faith. He's illustrating the point. And the point is ministry is the result of real faith. And keep in mind now, James was speaking to Christians who were all talk and no walk. They talked about ministry, they talked about spiritual things, but they did none of it. They weren't doing anything in response to their faith. And so James is saying, don't claim to be a person of faith if your faith has not resulted in ministry. And he's wanting us to know that real faith does ministry. Ministry, listen, is the mark of everyone who is born again. Ministry isn't just the work of the pastor or the church staff. They certainly should be lead examples of that. But every Christian is called. Every Christian is responsible to serve God. All of us are. Do you get that? All of us. And the fact is, if you are saved and your faith is real, it's not going to just show up on Sunday morning. It's going to show up on Monday and work all through your week. Jesus told a practical story in order to help us understand that. Do you know what that story was? It was the story of the Good Samaritan. How many of you know the story of the Good Samaritan? You know the story of the Good Samaritan? You know, a man is walking... Uh, down the road and he is uh, well a group of thieves come upon him and they beat him up and leave him for dead literally in a ditch and then the Bible says that uh, uh, a Levite walked by and saw his condition and moved to the other side of the road you know and just kept going I'm not going to have I'm not going to get involved by the way the church better understand it better get involved in the culture white still can I'm not going to get involved. And then, then it says a priest came by and did the same thing. Oh, look, he's in need, and, and he didn't get involved. And then it was a Samaritan. And by the way, a Samaritan was considered a mongrel. They were a half-breed. They were not held in high esteem. And it is this, this Samaritan who sees this man in need, and though the man in need in his better days, would have had nothing to do with the Samaritan. The Samaritan didn't pass him by. And the Samaritan takes him, you know, and puts him up, puts him in, pays the bill, and tells the innkeeper that, you know, I'll, uh, I'll take care of him if, if, if uh, I, whatever else is needed. What, what was Jesus telling us for? He was telling us that ministry has no boundaries. It has no ethnic boundaries. There's a person in need. There's something we can do. And do you know every time you help somebody understand Christ, you're doing ministry. We've got a team, and I hope you'll be praying for them all week in Vermont, and they're doing ministry. And they'll be ministering to people in various places, and there's some great ministry that can take place where they are. We've been there many times. But let me tell you what ministry centered faith does the first thing it does is it looks outward 
It looks outward. It says, Lord, where can I serve? Lord, who can I serve? You say, well, I don't have a big sphere of influence. That's, that has nothing to do with it. It's not about how many around you. It's about what kind. It's, it starts right where you are. It starts in your circle, whatever that is, big, small, wherever it is. Lord, I'm here. You've placed me here. How can I serve you? What can I do to reflect you to those around you? It looks outward. How can I, I serve? Remember what Jesus said. When you start thinking you don't have much of a ministry platform, Jesus said, he that has given a cup of cold water to one of the least of these has done it unto me. When did we see you, Father Thirsty? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked and, and not clothe you? We would have done it all for you. Jesus says, listen, if you're doing it for those in need, that's, that, uh, that man in the ditch, that, uh, if you're doing it there, you're doing it to me. And, and ministry-centered faith looks outward. And then ministry-centered faith lifts upward. You know what it does? The... the The Samaritan didn't say to the guy in the ditch, now look, I've got some water here. You can have some water, and uh, I hope you get out of the ditch. That still would have been more than the other two, wouldn't it? But it wasn't sufficient. Do you know what ministry does? It says, "I I can't get everybody out of the ditch, but I can get this guy out of the ditch. You, I've told this story a hundred times, I bet, in 20-something years, but the little boy on the seashore, you remember he's walking in there, all of these uh, starfish have washed up on the seashore, hundreds of them, and the little boy's picking them up, and he's throwing them back to the ocean so they'll live, and he's throwing them back one by one, and an older man walks up and says, son, what are you doing? He says, I'm I'm, I'm saving the starfish, And, and the man says, son, look at all these starfish. Don't you know you can't you can't, you can't save all these starfish. And the little boy throw, picks up another one and throws it out. He said, but it makes a difference to that one. Right? You see, don't, don't let the devil say, well, you can't have an impact. You can have an impact right where you are. You can't lift everybody out of the ditch, all right? But you can lift this one out or this one out, and it makes a difference there. And by the way, it makes a difference for eternity. That's why Jesus said, he that has done it to the least of these has done it even unto me. It looks outward. It lifts upward. Real faith finds ministry. So how can you find yours? Well, let me just quickly give you some ways so you can find your ministry. Begin with one word. You know what that word is? Yes. Start right there. Lord, I'll serve. I've had, uh, and I'm not talking about vocational service like what God's called me to. That is service, and like our staff are called to, those are vocational callings, and I believe specifically in those vocational callings. Uh, the scripture points to that. But all of us have this calling. But I've had people come to me and say, Well, I don't, I don't know what God wants me to do. And I said, Don't worry about that. You stay. Get close to Jesus. He'll let you know what to do and just start doing what you can do where you are. Just say yes. Lord, I, yes. And then, second, all born-again believers have ministry in them. Never forget that you have ministry in you. If you're born again, God designs you with a purpose and God designs you on purpose. We've been going through deacon interviews. We'll vote on 12 men next Sunday 
We'll introduce those to you from the slate. We have 17 that are being brought forward, and we'll select 12 of those. And we've been going through interviews. We have a panel of deacons, and they go through a, kind of a pre-interview. Our, our men that uh, serve, they go through an extensive questionnaire and doctrinal things and uh, family life and all kinds of things like that. And, and, uh, and then they meet with our interview team, and and uh, that's just such a joy to meet with these men and just hear what ha- their stories. You learn their stories, and that's a really uh, a neat thing. And, and uh, the other evening, we were finishing up, and we were meeting with one uh, of the candidates, and uh, uh, he and his wife have uh, been here for years. Uh, first time that he's uh, been nominated uh, by his own. Uh, uh, and so we're, we're interviewing, and before the interview... We're going to ask them questions, right? He and his wife, for years, worked with children uh, here at Ridgecrest. And, and uh, so before we could even get into the questions, one of our panel, one of our deacons, our, uh, a younger deacon said, before we get started, I just want to say something. He got a little choked up. He said, I want to say thank you for what you and your wife have done through the years because my child is different because of your ministry. And when he finished, another one at the other end of the table said, well, I I need to say something too. I need to say the same thing. I can't pay you, repay you for what you've done in the life of my child. And three different guys spoke up like that, and and, um, it was just a neat thing to see. Ministry... Ministry can happen in all kinds of different ways. And so what you and I must do is we have to say, God, help me to find a place and I will serve you. Don't underestimate the power of God to use you. The third way to find your ministry is to spend time in God's Word. I'm convinced that if you don't, you won't. Let God speak to your heart. Just say, God, speak to me. And then number four, identify your gifts, your abilities, and your passions. I've watched through the years, and I've noticed that between your gifts, spiritual gifts, your natural abilities, which are gifts from God too, by the way, and what you're real passionate about, the intersection of those three things is often the place where you'll have your greatest ministry. And that's true for all of us at that intersection. Number five, Don't get discouraged if nothing clearly stands out. Don't say, well, I I have done that. I have prayed. I have spent time in the Word. I've said yes to to God and and all of that, and nothing has jumped out. Uh, What do you do there? Well, I've had people say, well, when I find out I'm going to start serving, that's backwards. Find a place, any place, and serve. It's not a life sentence. It doesn't mean that God won't move you into some other thing. Or you, and by the way, I'm not just talking about ministry within the church. I think, by the way, your gifts and abilities were given to you for the body life, the life of the church. Okay, that's first and foremost, so you need to understand. Just find a place and begin serving God, and, and then God can move you to whatever kind of role or ministry he has. And then number six, listen, don't procrastinate. Don't procrastinate. Start. (laughs) I think one of the hardest aspects of ministry is this right here, just starting. 
I'm going to. I will. I'm going to. I'm going to become more conscientious about ministry. I, I, I'm going to become more conscientious about serving God with my life, wherever I am, in my home, in my community, in my workplace, in my church, and all of that. So don't procrastinate. Start. And then I would say, and really I've already said it in so many ways, start looking for opportunities. Look for opportunities. When God has a commitment of your heart, you're going to start seeing ministry. Oh, I, I could do that. Oh, I, I could do that. When God has the commitment of your heart, you'll start seeing ministry. And, and your ears will be in tune to ministry opportunities. What, what do you need? What, what do you need? That's how you find your ministry. But here's my point. Powerful faith is a faith that ministers. That's what James is trying to help us understand. That's why he uses this, this illustration of ministering to orphans and to widows in their affliction. But let me close with one more characteristic of powerful faith that he gives us right here. And that is, in verse 27, he says, it is morally clean. You notice he adds the statement, and unstained from the world. Now, what does James mean when he, when he says world? What does he mean when he uses that world? He's not talking about the, the, the natural world. He's not talking about the physical universe. He's not talking about good old terra firma. He's, that's not what he means by the world. What he's talking about is an, uh, an ungodly value system that the Bible calls the world, the world system, the world's value system. I talked a little bit last week about the importance of a biblical world view. Why? It's a value system. And that's what he's talking about here. He said, be unstained from the world's value system. Paul wrote in Romans 12, do not be conformed to, to this world, but be transformed. What is he talking about? He's talking about the value system that characterizes the world that you and I are living in. And then he used, did you notice the word unstained? It, what does that mean? What is he talking about? He's, he, that word denotes the idea of not being morally corrupted. In other words, that you're not corrupted morally by the value system of the world. The world's value system doesn't. Listen, do I need to even say this? But if you follow the value system of the world you're living in right now, it will corrupt you morally. Amen? And so he says, say, don't let the system, the world system, don't let it corrupt you. Don't let it stain you. You see, there are two value systems competing for your soul. There are two value systems competing for your heart and for your mind and for your affection. And there's an agenda. And you're the target. There's a kingdom of God agenda given to us in the Word of God and through the Spirit of God that lives within us. And then there's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom that is under the control of God's enemy, Satan. In fact, in 1 John 2.16, the Bible says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And in 1 John 2.15, the scripture says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again, in James, this same book, chapter 4, verse 4 says, 
that friendship with the world is warfare with God. Does anybody want to engage in a war with God? I don't think so. So why is James' message so important? It is because the kingdom that you serve will determine the condition of the inner person. You're going to serve one of those two kingdoms. And and the kingdom you serve will determine the condition of the soul, of the inner you, the inner self, the inner man, the inner woman. It will determine whether you just have an outward form of godliness or the inner transforming power of the Spirit of God. Now, many today have not been transformed on the inside. They're going through religious motions. They're they're going through a Sunday form. But on Monday, they are far more attached to the ungodly world system than to the incorruptible system of the kingdom of God. And the point is this, that powerful faith, real faith, is a faith that changes us on the inside. It's not motions that are, are uh, uh, performed on the outside. That was the Pharisees. And there are many people today for whom Christianity is just something that they've kind of tacked on to their life. By the way, that won't get you through when the storms come. And storms are coming. And a faith that's just been, been tacked on by religious uh, uh, identity is not going to carry you. And there are a lot of people today that Christianity is just that. It's just something they've kind of tacked on to their lives. But James is saying, he's saying to us as he was to them, that if your religion is real, it's going to transform you uh, uh, from the inside out. And it's going to prevent you from being stained and corrupted by the world and the spirit of the age. And because that's true, I would say this to you. Stop, stop living superficially. You don't have to. When you can know Christ and you can begin living supernaturally. Stop living pointlessly and start living powerfully. Be transformed by Christ. Because I want to promise you, you can't be transformed by religion. In 19... 19- 88, April of 1988, the evening news reported on a photographer who was skydiving, and he had jumped from a plane along with numerous other skydivers to film this group. They were uh, uh, one of these uh, professional groups, and he was, they were doing this kind of mini documentary, and he jumped to film them doing their stuff, and, and, uh, um, he filmed the group as they fell and then opened their parachutes and did some other tricks and stuff in the air. And then on the film, the telecast showed that the final skydiver, the photographer, uh, had reached to pull for his chute and there was no chute there. And the camera goes berserk because suddenly he realized that he was free-falling without a parachute. What had happened in his excitement to shoot this, he jumped out of the plane to follow them without having strapped his parachute on. And he fell to his death, a free fall to his death. 
you know, probably until the point in time where he realized that he didn't have a parachute on, he might have even thought, well, this is exciting and fun. But tragically, nothing could save him at that point. Because his faith was in a parachute that he never put on. I want to tell you today that there are people who have put their faith in a parachute that won't be there for them when they need it the most. They put on religion hoping that religion would be all they need. That's the age you're living in. There are churches today that are just religious places. There are preachers today that are just religious preachers. Friend, make sure you've got more than religion. You see, eternity is like the ground. It's coming up fast. And many people who claim to believe that Jesus is their parachute have never put him on. Their faith is not real faith. It's pointless. And their lives have not been transformed. And unless they put their trust in Jesus Christ, they are headed straight to death and to hell. If that's you, why don't you change the outcome today? We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I say what I just said to you to say the answer is reflected in what this supper means. The answer is not religion. By the way, in Jesus' day, there was plenty of religion. The answer is in the blood of Christ. The blood that was shed for you. The body that was broken for you. By his stripes, we're here. By his poured out blood, our sins are atoned for. In just a moment, after we partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to give an invitation, but... But for now, I don't want you to miss the significance of what this means. You say, who can partake of this? Because we're told it's one of our ordinances that the Bible gives to us, not that we concocted, not as a, a, as a ritual or a, uh, some liturgy. It is given to us from the Scripture. And Jesus gave this to us to remind us, first of all, of the price that was paid for us. Number two, to remind us of the incredible love that God has for us in that he would send his son to die for us. He came into his own and his own received us. Think about that. He knew that. He knew that many would reject him, but he said, I don't care. I love them. I love them all. And so it is to remind us of the price. It is to remind us of his passion for us. And he says, as often as you do this, remember what I did for you. I want to invite you now, if you will, to take the bread from the cup. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, said this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the bread that represents the body that was broken that we might be healed in Jesus name we praise you 
the Bible goes on to say, and when he'd given thanks and broken and they'd taken the body, he said in the same way, take the cup, if you will now, take the cup and He took the cup, and after taking the cup, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he said that the cup, he said, is the new covenant. That's very important. You see, the old cup required constant sacrifice, constant sacrifice, constant sacrifice. He said, there's a new covenant. And this blood represents that covenant. I'm about to shed my blood for you on the cross. And he says, so when you take the cup, remember it's been taken care of. The debt has been paid once and for all. That's the new covenant. Amen. And so it says, when you do this, remember what I did for you. Lord, we thank you for the bloodshed, for the cup and what it means. We receive it now with gratefulness appreciation and thanksgiving in Jesus name amen well you must be born again real faith is a born again faith the Lord's Supper symbolizes what he did what happens beyond that is that you and I respond And that's what an invitation is about. And so I'm going to step down here. Staff are going to be on the sides. And you say, what is an invitation? It's an invitation for a response, a faith response for some who've never fully trusted Christ. You may be one of those who've trusted in religion, and religion won't get you there. But today you want to come and say, "I, I need to make sure that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Maybe you've doubted. You need to settle that. You come. Take one of us, and we'll help you with that. Maybe... Maybe you're here this morning and you just need a church home and you want to become a part of our family here, a healthy body of believers. You want to be a part where you can serve and, and where you can bless and be blessed. And so you'll come to one of us. If you're watching by live stream, there's instructions and information on your screen about how you can make these same decisions where you are. You're here. You can, you can come forward. You can... Stop by our Welcome Center and talk with someone. Our staff is there. You can use the tear-off panel, but I want to invite you to come. You say, why do, why do you invite people publicly? Did you know everybody Jesus ever called, he called publicly? He called them publicly. We hadn't quit doing that. And I want to invite you to slip out and you come make your decision. Maybe you want to just come and pray around this altar. It's open for you. Don't miss the opportunity to bend your knee before a holy God. Maybe just to come and say, God, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you that it's not about religion. I want to thank you for my relationship. I want to thank you for your blood shed for me. I want to thank you that I'm forgiven. Maybe you're praying for someone or something going on, and you need to talk to him. Whatever the case may be, decision to be made. Don't miss it. Are you ready? Lord Jesus, now, we pray that you'll move in these moments before we're gone. We ask it in Jesus' name.